Welcome to The Experience Makers, a podcast series from Cognify, a WPP marketing technology consultancy. I'm Joe Milne, I'm a journalist, and once a month I'm going to be reimagining customer experience with Cognify and their guests from across the marketing technology industry. We're going to delve into everything from what today's consumers really want, right through to the technology that feeds the experience economy and the digital transformation process. Whatever stage of the digital journey you're on, if you're in business today, this one is for you. For today's episode, we're going to be focusing on when content and commerce collide. And joining me in the studio, we have Miro Walker, CEO of Cognified, and Naji El Arifi, Head of Innovation at Wonderman Thompson Commerce. Okay, so we're going to be talking about intersection of commerce and content. Mm. What I would love to actually kick us off is maybe just hear from both your perspectives. When I say intersection of commerce and content, what that really means to you and what it is that you guys do that is linked to that. Maybe we'll start with you, Biro. I mean, I guess from... From my point of view, is the intersection of content and commerce is, I mean, it's really about how commerce is moving from being a shopping cart and a product catalogue towards a much more kind of fluid journey between editorial, social content, um, all sorts of other areas of content that you find online, and the ability to transact and buy things within that environment. Love it. Uh, Najee, what about yourself? I think for me, it's pretty much... Um, the same sort of idea. It's kind of gone from, you know, shopping baskets and, you know, websites to being able to purchase any anywhere at any time. Um, and pretty much the idea of most companies now becoming an e-commerce company because everyone's now going to have to think about how the, the journey is changing from like a very particular moment in time when someone would buy something to someone may want something at any moment. Mm. So you need to be able to deliver them an experience that they want at any time during that that, uh, that journey. So, you know, for example, on voice, you know, someone could just want something straight away when they see something on TV and they just want to buy it straight away. Amazing. Um, you guys did a future shopper report. I was, mm-hmm. I was having a little read about it. Before we get into some of the, the nitty gritty of that, I think the big question that tends to get talked about quite a lot when we're talking about future retail, future commerce, is this idea of, you know, the bricks and mortar shops are dying and it's being replaced by online. What do you guys, do you guys think that's a truth or do you think that's a bit of an oversimplification? I think it's a bit of an oversimplification because um, some of the research we're doing now, and we're going to actually come out with another report, um, is showing that a lot of younger people will only shop at stores Hmm. that have physical locations. So yeah. not just in-store. They want that experience to go in somewhere, try something on, but they may purchase it online. So the idea that I think companies need to kind of start to separate the idea of the in-store experience being solely about purchasing to being more of an experience-led, service-led experience. Mm. Because otherwise you can end up in this position where people will come in-store to try on the clothes and then they'll go home and buy it, but then you've not made the connection that actually they made the purchase because they came in-store to try it on first before doing it online. Mm. So I think there's a lot of stuff around that where people, I think, are tying together too much around the the buying side of it rather than the experience side of it. In the UK, I think it was John Lewis was one of the, there was a sort of a pioneering this step they took a while ago where they started um, comping the store managers on any e-commerce transactions that were done within a certain radius around that store. And suddenly behavior changed completely and mm. the, you know, the partners, as John Lewis have in their um in their stores, um, started actively pushing people towards, you know, buying stuff online or helping them do it in the store with them or looking up stock levels online that they didn't have in store because, you know, it was all the same as far as they were concerned. If they didn't have it in the back room or they didn't have it there, they could get it for them online. And that that sense that online enhances the experience that you have in store and in the same way, 
you know, in store, as Najee was saying, enhances your online experience by giving you the opportunity to touch things and try them and all this. Sort of, I mean, and that's what it's about. It's changed massively our expectations out of both channels rather than really being set up directly in competition with each other in every case. I suppose it kind of comes back to the idea of how is it that you measure success? If you're going to be measuring a store by how many you know sales per square foot or whatever it is that the sort of traditional metrics were, um, obviously John Lewis is going to look like it's underperforming or their partners aren't performing. But I mean, that's a really intelligent way of doing it. But when it comes to this idea of expectations, what, what do you mean by the shift in expectations? And, and therefore, how can retailers shift the way they, whether it's measure or put expectations onto their staff when it comes to measuring both online and offline? Okay, so I mean, what I mean by the shift in expectations is that, um, you know, if you roll back sort of pre-internet, pre-online shopping, then the only way to buy something other than maybe mail order catalogs was to go into a shop and pick it up and take it to a till and buy it. And if it wasn't there, then you couldn't get it. And so you kind of have this monopoly of attention. Once somebody's in the store, then that's it. Um, and I think now people can wander around a store with a smartphone and compare what you've got with all your competitors and decide whether it's worth waiting for the next day to buy it online or get it right now or go next door or whatever. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. And so, you know, people are doing that anyway. And so if you can't have an in-store experience that's in some way connected to what they're doing online, hmm. um, then you're going to miss some expectations. And so I think that's what I mean about changing expectations is that people's behaviors are changing their sense that, you know, they can go into a store and have some sort of connection with what they're seeing online, with what they're seeing in the store, and, you know, some sense of choice and freedom to move between channels as they want to. Mm. Um, I mean, that's kind of what people expect more and more. And unless you can respond to that as a retailer, um, you're missing out and somebody mm. else is going to get the sale. Absolutely. I think what you'll also find as well is more people are comparing across categories as well. So services that will experience from one company, they'll expect in another one. Mm. So, for example, you know, I compare Uber to, you know, any other delivery company, for example. Um, we're finding a lot of people, I think the Future Shopper report is saying, you know, 72%. So they wish that retailers offer the same experience as Amazon. Mm. So now everyone's comparing their experience they're having in store with that of Amazon. You know, why can't I get it tomorrow? Why can't I get it same day? Um, so I think there's a lot of that as well. So um, companies and, and brands need to think about how they work and how they compare, not just within their own um, category, but across the entire field. You know, how do you compare to some of these top tier companies? I like that we, we got to Amazon probably less than five minutes into our discussion, um, which, uh, which makes sense. So let's actually go straight into that. You said there about comparing to Amazon. You mentioned delivery, you know, getting in the next day. What are the things about Amazon that people tend to prefer and kind of expect from, from retailers? Is it just fast delivery or is it something else? Um, well, so there's, I think we, we put it down as about five different things. So the idea that they sell absolutely everything is a major part of that. Um, the fact that they make buying really easy. So they really look very closely at um, friction points and try to make things as simple and easy as possible. You know, when payment was taking too long, you know, one click came about. So again, it's just that if I want this one thing, I can go in, boom, and I've got it straight away. Um, of course, they've got Prime as well. Mm. 
So if you're a Prime member, you probably spend a lot of your money with Amazon. Um, I know I spend a hell of a lot of money with Amazon. I think last year I got it up to 94% or something, which is a crazy amount. I didn't buy fuel from there or something. That's just insane. Though. No. <laughs> well, I was try- it, was a- it was an experiment. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember hearing about that when you talked about it before. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but it shows just how much you can get from them. Um, and also they-, they provide other benefits like, you know, video content um, and music. And, you know, you can even store pictures with them if you're a Prime user. Um, and then, of course, um, they make it really easy to engage with them across their whole ecosystem as well. So, you know, that whole idea of single sign-on and understanding them. They've got other areas where they experiment. So things like Alexa, they've got um, the Go stores in America, um, the four-star store, which is really interesting in New York, where, you know, every single product there is only stuff that's on Amazon that's four stars and rated and above. Oh, I haven't heard of that before. So no, it's absolutely brilliant. Hmm. Um, but not only that, they're doing other things that are really interesting, like their bookstore. They use online reviews to enhance the experience in store. So, for example, there's a section where it's like um, books that Kindle users read in a weekend. Mm. You know, it's like that's a section. You know, books that Kindle users said were 4.5 stars and above, and that's a section as well. So they're kind of they're using data in this really great way across everything to deliver a really clean experience across the whole brand. So I think people see that and go, I want that from everywhere else because you're making my life so much easier. Mm. And they're they're affecting as well what you buy. I mean, Kindle's a perfect example where you have, you know, self-publishing certain areas have pushed up and these books mm-hmm. just aren't in stores, but they're top of Amazon charts. You know, yeah. it's, it's insane that sort of uh, impact that it can have that just isn't happening sort of in the quote-unquote real world. Mm. Did you, did you, I'm just, did you manage to get any stats on you know what proportion of Amazon's customers have actually been anywhere near one of those stores? Because it's you know it's really exciting, but but I just wonder actually you know is that just beginning to happen? Is it people like us who are excited about that, or is everybody starting to see that? I think what what we're seeing is actually that there aren't many people going to those stores because I've only got a couple of them, but we're seeing that the people that are do who are using it are relatively loyal to it because it's a much better experience than you'll get anywhere else. So for example, the ghost stores. Um, we didn't manage to get much data on that, but you can see from a lot of the reviews that are happening online that people just love it. You just walk in, you pick it out, and you leave everyone saying it's like stealing. So, mm. you know, that idea of never having to queue again is just so compelling that I think a lot of people just want to do it. So the question is, like, how can other brands start to get involved in that kind of technology and try to advance their in-store experiences? Because, you know, Amazon's coming for them, basically. Right, so that was going to be my next question. What is it about trying to replicate what Amazon already offers or is it about trying to just learn from them and adapt like what is it that retailers can do to kind of i don't know jump on the success or the expectations that amazon's created within within customers i mean my view is you kind of have to separate some of that stuff out so there's you know there's a lot of exciting things in the list that Najee's talked about i think they are as you say they're sort of slightly niche and fringe at the moment there's not very much of it they're innovation that people are trying it's working well but i think there are other people who are going in different directions, massively more experiential shopping experiences. I mean, you go into an Apple store, it's not anything like what Nudgy's just been talking about there in terms of the sort of convenience of pick something up and walk out, and yet people are intensely loyal mm. to that as an experience and love it as well. So I think the fact that people like something about the Amazon experience doesn't mean that everybody has to go out and clone that. But I think there is a sense in which you know it defines a level 
of expectation that people need to aspire to, if not the details on how, what precise components of that you should be going after. I suppose it's also um, boiling down to precisely actually what it is that people like about the experience. Because if you, you know, you, t- you said the, a- the Apple store there, which is not the same as the ghost store where you walk in, but I would say that both of them have an element of delight and both of them have an element of convenience, right? And, and mm-hmm. so I suppose it's more about boiling down what good experience means to a consumer. You Do you know? think the Apple store is convenient? It's sort of... Except I mean, from the waiting could, sometimes. But once you've got something, you just walk up to someone and they buzz it with their little thing and you walk... So, I mean, that's and, more and convenient can, than a queue. You can buy it with the app as well. So you don't even need to talk to someone. It doesn't feel like convenience is the thing. It's more this kind of immersion in the Apple brand and the ability right. to... Exactly. And I think, it, I suppose that's what I mean about boiling down what people are looking for and then working out to what end of the scale on yeah, each yeah. of those things makes sense. I mean, if you go into, I don't know, Chanel to get a new bag, you yeah. don't want to just walk in, pick up one and go out. You want to be mm. treated nicely. You want it to be a kind of, this is a big decision for most people to buy a <laughs> Chanel bag and yeah, yeah. you want to be looked after. And I think, I suppose it's about boiling down the facets of what experience actually means and then for each individual ba- brand um, applying it in the way that makes most sense knowing your customer etc 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 or maybe I, again I'm being over no 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 I mean I think that's that, that's spot on and it almost comes back to the, the opening part of this conversation where we're talking about what's the you know what does content the intersection mm-hmm. of content and, and commerce mean I mean it's not enough to put a catalogue online in the same way that you know Chanel can't be successful online by just sticking here are our bags in a list on a screen. You know, they have to make something that approximates the kind of experience you have in a store or supports it or is, you know, works with it in some way so that Chanel customers feel at home through an online experience as much as they do in store. And that's, Mm. you know, otherwise, you know, if they just stuck a list of here are our products, you can buy them online, that's kind of destroying the brand. And Mm. you know what I mean? It's kind of... it's not enough just to have the catalogue of products and the ability to buy and the, tr- the delivery and all the rest of it. There has to be the experience that sits around it. And that, in many cases online, is a content-driven experience. And that's kind of perhaps where that comes from. Well, it really comes down to context, doesn't it, of what, what are you selling? Is it something that someone can pick up and just leave with? Or is it something that deserves you know, an £800 bag and mm. want to talk about it? Um, one of the things that we've been looking at as well is you know, what Amazon can't do. Mm. So looking at some of these brands and thinking, right, you're competing with them. Right? What do they not do very well? And so some of the research that, research that we've come up with is like there are almost four or five areas where Amazon actually isn't seen by some people to be the best at. So, for example, one of them is price. So I think, uh, make sure I've got my numbers right, 61% of customers said that they could find better pricing elsewhere. Better than Amazon? Better than Amazon, which is really weird. And we're like wondering, huh. like, is that really true? But if you sit mm. down and you think about it and you're a Prime user, one of the first things you'll do when you search for something is click the Prime button. Mm. Uncheck that button and see how much things cost. They're actually cheaper. So there are places where you can probably find things cheaper. Um, so Amazon probably isn't number one at price as much as it used to be. Or the concept, the, the idea of them being number one is starting to, to fall a bit. Um, we're finding that Gen Z feel like um, it's not the best place to have a good shopping experience, like to, to get inspiration from, because a lot of people kind of just go there to buy one thing. They're like, you want these pair of shoes, you go and you buy it and you know exactly what you want. You're not going there for inspiration. Oh man, the browse. See, when you search, some of the stuff you get in search is hilarious. Exactly. Um, and also, um, a lot of people think they can find better specialized products elsewhere. So I think it's a really good example. I mean, we'll probably talk about it later around developing a, a, a balanced strategy. But you've got companies like Nike, for example. Um, if you want to get Nike ID, you have to go directly to Nike. If you just want a pair of black Nikes, you can go to Amazon 
and just type in black Nike size 11 and you'll get what you want. But you're not going to get like the custom cool stuff that you'll find in, you know, some retailers or directly from Nike. Um, and there's a few others as well. But I mean, like I said, um, it's about looking for what Amazon and what the people that you're competing against can't do and focus on those things and try to try to outdo them on those areas. I think the approach of thinking about, you know, what Amazon can't do and how, how brands can sort of fill the gaps where they are falling short is, is certainly an interesting one. Um, but how does that tie in with, you know, what is it that the customer actually wants? You know, instead of trying to, I suppose, fill gaps, you know, how do you actually find out what it is that other than obviously producing reports and mm. selling them? <laughs> but, you know, how is it that you work out precisely what it is that people are looking for? Or is it about going we can do all these things, so we might as well just, you know, do all the strategies and hope that it helps somebody out there. Well, I think one of the areas that we've been doing quite a lot, especially recently, are um, customer journey mapping. Hmm. It's really important to really focus on what your customers want and what they do and how they shop with you. And I think that's one area that, again, we can all learn from Amazon because they are intently focused on being customer first. So that's one area that other brands really need to focus on. So, for example... Um, understanding that whole journey from beginning to end will allow you to find some of these friction points and start to address them. So I think that's one area that companies really need to start doing. And I'm not saying that just because we sell that service. Let's go on a little bit to touch on what you said um, there about this idea of a sort of multi-channel or omni-channel approach and how you how you do think about that strategy of whether you just say, okay, well, we can do an online catalogue and we can have an amazing in-store experience and we can do X, Y, and Z. Um, is it about trying to make the most of the fact that's all available and kind of just doing it all? Or how do you think about um, deciding what's going to be most effective and most cost effective too? To the points that Nadia was talking about earlier, but I think they're very valid. If, you're, you know, if your focus is around um, products that are intensely customizable or very personalized to the individual that's buying them, um, then looking at how you can use the different channels you're working in to help make that whole process of buying something a more involved more multi-channel experience so you can go into a store you can see what you know examples of a, take a shoe a particular shoe feels like look, looks like particular examples but then you'll use an app or an online experience to actually customize it and to finish that purchase because that's much more complex interaction that might involve you much be might harder much harder to do in a store or more expensive to supply as well in a store with a sales rep taking you through that sort of process. So I think it's about thinking of what is the core of what you're trying to offer to the customer, what's the core of that experience, and then understanding how the different channels can work together to support that in the best possible way, rather than just you know making the same catalog or the same experience available in different places. I think mean, the, the companies that are doing this most successfully are the ones that are trying to figure out how the channels can support each other mm. um, because, you know, we all walk around with devices in our pockets and, you know, we have devices in our homes, whether it's kind of Alexa's or whatever, you know, we've got all of these different channels available to us all the time. It's, it's not like I'm sat at my desktop and I have an online experience and then I go into a store and I have an offline experience. Mm. These things are all merged together. And so figuring out how you can make them work and support each other you know, the John Lewis example we talked about at the beginning, it was a very simple beginning to that, which mm. was just operationally, how do you make them support each other? Where we are now is actually thinking much more in the detail of the experience and how you can make it feel seamless and almost not make it feel like multiple individual channels, but all part of the same thing. Mm. Um, because that, that gives the customer the 
biggest amount of flexibilities to how mm. they interact with you and how they work. Do you have a brand sort of front of mind that you think is kind of doing that really well? We spoke, we've had Nike, we've had John Lewis, like others that do that, that manage to have that feel of one experience. So Adidas mm. launched a shoe called Glitch that basically was only available through an app. Mm. You could only buy it, you could customise it. It was a similar sort of idea to the, the Nike ID, but you could only buy it through the app. Mm. Um, now, if that was all that Adidas sold, it wouldn't have worked. But because Adidas have this broad range of products available to them, they can create niche products that work through a specific channel and tie them to that channel um, in a way that then supports the entire brand. So, you mm. know, those people who want to have a more kind of generic experience might walk into a store or buy a product um, that's available off the shelf. Those who are very focused on customization have products and experiences available to them that enable that and allow them to do it. And so it's it makes the customer feel in control of their interaction with the brand and allow them to be those different things through the availability of effectively the same shoe just through yeah. you know different models in different ways. It reminds me of um, Supreme and how they managed to have people queuing outside of their shops for the, for the drops, you know, the, the drops of the merch or the shoes or whatever it is. And I wonder, with maybe this comes back to what Amazon's not good at, the sort of vast availability that Amazon gives you. Um, you know, brands, some brands seem to be doing a very good job of uh, fostering an idea of scarcity. And, and, you know, and that idea of you can only get it on the app or you can only get it if you go and queue outside or so on and so forth. Um, and bringing that sense of um, uniqueness sometimes to products that aren't even that expensive. Yep. Um, I think one of the things as well is um, you can kind of break down that experience into into four different parts that we found. So really you've got direct-to-consumer, you've got marketplaces, so like Amazon and stuff like that, you've got retailers, and we're now seeing social as one of those areas as well. And so what you want to do is really focus down on what you can deliver that's contextually relevant to each of those different areas. Mm. So if you go back to Nike... You know, a lot of the custom stuff with Nike ID, that goes directly through Nike. If you want, like, exclusives, you go through retailers. If you want the bog-standard stuff, you go via the marketplaces. And then the general kind of, like, cool inspirational stuff you'll find on social. And so what we've found is, like, those are the four key areas that allow you to kind of diversify your business a little bit. Mm. Because the last thing you want is, say, for example, 90% of your sales to be coming through Amazon. Because, you know, as soon as Amazon replicates your product online, you're going to be kind of stuck. So what we found is like diversifying and allowing yourself to have a really balanced strategy is really important. But again, like Mira said, it's about making sure that each one of those, you know, areas is specifically tailored to what you're trying to do for that that particular consumer. Mm, as opposed to it just being a, a blanket. Gonna, yeah, exactly. We're gonna yeah. use we just need to make sure we're selling everywhere. It's more going, exactly. okay, how do people use this? What can we how can we um I suppose personalize the channel for the products, not just for the sell as well, which is an interesting or, idea. Or or actually flip it on its head and how do we personalize the products for mm. the channel? Right, exactly. And, you know, it, both of those things are, and it obviously changes the whole process of product development as well mm. when you start thinking about it that way because you know, the fact that there is a channel that supports the ability to do things that you can't do through another channel. I mean, you need to take advantage of that mm. if you're really going to maximise the benefit you're getting out of selling through that channel. Well, I mean, it comes back to that whole um, thing with um, Amazon and Kindle books, right? I mean, you're literally influencing what books should be sold in a bookshop if they originate on Amazon, right? And seeing those trends come through, seeing what people are engaging with more and almost taking inspiration from... Yeah. 
from these places. A truly omni-channel experience. Absolutely. <laughs> um, there was one thing that was in the report that I thought was kind of interesting I'd like to um, to touch on. this idea of loyalty to service and not to brand. I thought that was a fascinating idea. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit, Nanji? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things that we found is we were trying to figure out what makes people buy at different places. And so one of the questions we asked was like, you know, what tips you over the edge to, to buying a certain product? And what we found is that brand actually was coming in third. Um, so it wasn't like the first thing people mm. were looking at to actually buy something. So it was coming behind price and delivery. It's like whether or not delivery was free. Um, so the idea that actually the services that are being provided to them are starting to become more important mm. than brand itself is what we're starting to see now. So, you know, whether or not you can deliver the same day is starting to be more important than whether or not you're Adidas or Nike. Does that, does that, is that across products? Because I would, I would assume that's probably, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume that that's lower price products, maybe up to £100 or something like that. Again, but that still probably, it still applies to expensive stuff because if you're buying between, say, Gucci and Burberry, which one is going to provide you that amazing experience in store? Mm. So it's going to Fair. start to filter into those areas as well. So unless you're super loyal to a particular brand, mm. then it's kind of up for debate on whether or not someone else's service is going to outdo you. I mean, you start to, you know, another way of almost expressing the same thing is that, you know, your definition of what a brand is becomes the service. Mm. And this is when, we, when people talk about experience, you know, that's almost what they mean. They mean is is the expression of a brand through a service, mm. um, and so it's you know your our perception of what Apple is as a brand is influenced heavily by the Apple Store and the experience we have in store. You know, if you walk in there and do it, and and that I think those two things become tightly correlated. They become interrelated. So as you you know, as you shift your service, your consumers' expectations or understanding of what your brand represents starts to move with it. So, I, I mean, mm. I, I know when you sort of make a survey, you'll always end up sort of ranking things one after the other. But I think those things are actually intensely tied together. And actually what you find is that, you know, brand as logo mm. probably drops in, in value, but brand as service, as complete end-to-end -end experience becomes massively more important. What does that mean for marketplaces then? Because if you say you're shopping on ASOS and they've got Nike and Adidas and all of the others and their prices are relatively comparable and it's the same delivery regardless. I think at that point what you're starting to see is then the brand will come into play because you're getting that service from ASOS, mm. but then it comes down to, right, which one do I prefer the look of, you know, the Adidas one or the Nikon, or which ones have I bought recently or which ones I'm more loyal to. Mm. So I think with those kind of marketplaces, the service is being provided by, say, ASOS. So it's not really the same as, like, say, another Mm. Uh, marketplace, like say you're buying the, the shoes off Amazon, for example. And I think that's what I find kind of interesting when we're speaking to retailers is they're kind of going, you know, we we, we want to want to make sure that our website and our service and our shops are, are as best as possible, but we also know we need to be on Amazon in order to, yeah. to sell by volume too. So it's how do we kind of make sure we're enhancing, you know, our own experience, but also still pushing people to buy through these marketplaces at the same Yeah, time. because people are still, you know, shopping in store and checking prices on Amazon. Mm. So if you're not on Amazon, and it could be a bit of a problem for you. Mm, mm. So again, it comes back to that whole idea of a balanced strategy. Um, 
I mean, I think it also depends who we're talking about. We're talking right. about very generically about are you listening to what we're talking about? Is somebody listening to this from the point of view of a retailer or are they pointing from the point of view of a brand? And those mm. are very different mm. perspectives that you have. I mean, if you think about it in a way, although Amazon is obviously in many ways incredibly revolutionary, um, they represent, in some ways at least, a new, re- a new imagining of a store in which you can place your product. I mean, mm. It's a fairly... I'm not saying anything interesting, particularly by that. But what I what is interesting, I think, is this concept that you know, direct to consumer and brand sites as a shopping channel. Um, you know, it's the, it's almost the non-retail channels that become very interesting in that mix because those didn't exist before. You know, there mm. were stores offline. There are stores online. They have different characteristics and different service profiles. I mean, I suppose there were brand stores like the Gucci store we're talking about, but extending that into a whole range of other products that you can you can start to buy direct from the um, direct from the brand and sort of subscription strategies that come along that. I mean. If you think about, uh, I mean, one of the companies we work with is Unilever, um, you know, very brand focused company, but they're starting to buy in companies like Dollar Shave Club mm. specifically for the expertise and now those have around new commerce models, subscription models. How does that work? How can they start? To, and then st- how do they start to think about how they can roll that out across some of the other brands that they mm. work with? So this becomes part of this whole mix. It's not just how do we evolve you know, one retail experience into another retail experience, but how do we just completely change the way that people interact with buying particular types of products? Okay, so let, why don't we finish with um, a little bit of advice? I always like these kind of podcasts to have a little bit of advice for those listening. Um how do brands future-proof when it comes to thinking about this interaction between content and commerce? I mean, we've probably covered all of the things you're going to say, but just to summarise, what would you what would you say is a sort of first step? So one of the main ones that, that we've been looking at is really lengthening your strategy. So thinking a lot further out. I think a lot of companies kind of sit there and go, right, what's our three-year and five-year strategy? But, you know, you're up against, you know, Amazon who's thinking 10, 20 years down the line. And that's a completely different way of thinking. And I think as soon as you start to think more long term, you'll start to see a bit more benefit because you'll probably start to invest a little bit more in newer technology so that you understand them better. So, you know, for example, you know, going back to, to voice, it may not be right for you to be in voice right now, but you should still understand how it works and how you could potentially benefit from it and how it could change the commerce experience in the future. So thinking more long term like that means that, you know, you may not be doing it in the next three years. But at least you'll know how to implement it when it becomes important, say, in three and a half, four, five, ten years' time. Mm, and even have the sort of groundwork now exactly. starting to be laid, yeah. at least. And understand, you know, you, you need to change your back-end systems to mm. be able to do some of this stuff. Okay, better to know that now than to find out too late when someone else has just leapfrogged you. Amazing. What about yourself, Mira? I mean, I, th- I suppose I, I can b- agree completely with Najee that, you know, taking a long-term approach is a good idea. I think there's also stuff you can do thinking a little bit shorter term. You know, there's the reality is that not everybody has, you know, got right to the edge of what can be done today. And there's a lot of fairly sort of relatively easy tactical things that can be done just to look at, you know, um, a balanced channel strategy across the different channels you're working with and understanding what is your strategy for each of those channels and how do those then work together to improve the overall customer experience. Um, I think that's really important and that's an easy first step to start looking at and just start analysing what's actually going on in those and making sure that you know, you're know you not just blindly replicating what you do in one channel in another channel 
just because that's the way things have always been done. Um, so I think as a very easy first step, just sort of thinking and breaking down what you're doing across channels and, and looking at how that works. And then, you know, going forwards, I think we're, you know, a lot of companies are, there's been a lot of optimization inside channels themselves as to, you know, how can we make the experience of, you know, checkout ordering all these sorts of things more seamless. If you haven't gone all the way that you can in terms of that, then there's easy wins to be made in just improving what's happening inside a channel. But then, you know, once you sort of maximize perhaps the optimization you've got within there, then this interaction of content and commerce becomes perhaps more important. And you start thinking about not just how can we make it more easy to transact, but actually how can we push people to transact? You know, how can we increase the size of baskets? How can we increase the value of orders? How can we make that people more loyal and keep them coming back? And that then becomes much more of a content and experiential this conversation that you can then take forward. So that, that's kind of how I would start thinking about this. Amazing. So think long term. And I suppose what you're kind of saying there is not go back to basics, but really think about what is it precisely that customers actually want and need and how can you deliver the simple stuff first before yeah. you kind of go a bit. And, how, you know, how do all the channels that we've got available from social yeah. to, you know, brand sites to retail experiences to everything else, you know, how do they work together to improve that and how do they work independently, you know, to maximise what you're getting out of each of those investments? Amazing. Thank you both for joining us on the show. You've been listening to The Experience Makers, a Cognified podcast. You can follow us at Cognified on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram, or you can visit us at Cognified.com. Make sure you check out next month's episode where we are going to continue the experience conversation on the theme of AI and marketing and the future of customer experience. We're going to be joined in the studio by Yenji Oshinsky, Senior QA Engineer at Cognified and Mario Coletti, UK Managing Director at Next Atlas. 